there. My name is Kalendor Val. I'm a voice actor and performer based out of Vancouver, Canada. I co-produce a podcast called Dessert Before Breakfast about TV shows. And if you want to catch up with any of my voiceover projects, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kalendor Val or check out my website at calendorval.com. Without further ado, please enjoy chapters 9 and 10 of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee. Chapter 9 It became clear to me now that, incredible as it might seem, the thing that ailed William Oak was jealousy. He was simply madly in love with his wife, and madly jealous of her. Jealous. But of whom? He himself would probably have been quite unable to say. In the first place, to clear off any possible suspicion, certainly not of me. Besides the fact that Mrs. Oak took only just a very little more interest in me than in the butler or the upper housemaid, I think that Oak himself was the sort of man whose imagination would recoil from realizing any definite object of jealousy, even though jealousy might be killing him inch by inch. It remained a vague, permeating, continuous feeling, the feeling that he loved her and she did not care a jack's straw about him, and that everything with which she came into contact was receiving some of that notice which was refused to him, every person or thing or tree or stone. It was the recognition of that strange far-off look in Mrs. Oak's eyes, of that strange absent smile on Mrs. Oak's lips, eyes and lips that had no look and no smile for him. Gradually, his nervousness, his watchfulness, suspiciousness, tendency to start, took a definite shape. Mr. Oak was forever alluding to steps or voices he had heard, to figures he had seen sneaking round the house. The sudden bark of one of the dogs would make him jump up. He cleaned and loaded very carefully all the guns and revolvers in his study, and even some of the old fowling pieces and holster pistols in the hall. The servants and tenants thought that Oak of Oakhurst had been seized with a terror of tramps and burglars. Mrs. Oak smiled contemptuously at all these doings. "'My dear William,' she said one day, "'the persons who worry you have just as good a right to walk up and down the passages and staircase and to hang about the house as you or I. They were there, in all probability, long before either of us was born, and are greatly amused by your preposterous notions of privacy.' Mr. Oak laughed angrily. I suppose you will tell me it is Lovelock, your eternal Lovelock, whose steps I hear on the gravel every night. I suppose he has as good a right to be here as you or I. And he strode out of the room. Lovelock. Lovelock. Why will she always go on like that about Lovelock? Mr. Oak asked me that evening, suddenly staring me in the face. I merely laughed. <laughs> it's only because she has that play of his on the brain, I answered. And because she thinks you superstitious and likes to tease you. I don't understand, sighed Oak. How could he? And if I had tried to make him do so, he would merely have thought I was insulting his wife and have perhaps kicked me out of the room. So I made no attempt to explain psychological problems to him, and he asked me no more questions until once. But I must first mention a curious incident that happened. The incident was simply this. Returning one afternoon from our usual walk, Mr. Oak suddenly asked the servant whether anyone had come. The answer was in the negative, but Oak did not seem satisfied. We had hardly sat down to dinner when he turned to his wife and asked, in a strange voice which I scarcely recognized as his own, who had called that afternoon. No one, answered Mrs. Oak, at least to the best of my knowledge. William Oak looked at her fixedly. No one? 
he repeated in a scrutinizing tone. No one, Alice? Mrs. Oak shook her head. No one, she replied. There was a pause. Who was it, then, that was walking with you near the pond, about five o'clock? asked Oak slowly. His wife lifted her eyes straight to his and answered contemptuously. No one was walking with me near the pond, at five o'clock or any other hour. Mr. Oak turned purple and made a curious hoarse noise like a man choking. I, I thought I saw you walking with a man this afternoon, Alice, he brought out with an effort, adding for the sake of appearances before me. I thought it might have been the curate come with that report for me. Mrs. Oak smiled. I can only repeat that no living creature has been near me this afternoon, she said slowly. If you saw anyone with me, it must have been Lovelock, for there certainly was no one else. And she gave a little sigh, like a person trying to reproduce in her mind some delightful but too evanescent impression. I looked at my host. From crimson his face had turned perfectly livid, and he breathed as if someone were squeezing his windpipe. No more was said about the matter. I vaguely felt that a great danger was threatening. To Oak or to Mrs. Oak, I could not tell which. But I was aware of an imperious inner call to avert some dreadful evil, to exert myself, to explain, to interpose. I determined to speak to Oak the following day, for I trusted him to give me a quiet hearing, and I did not trust Mrs. Oak. That woman would slip through my fingers like a snake if I attempted to grasp her elusive character. I asked Oak whether he would take a walk with me the next afternoon, and he accepted to do so with a curious eagerness. We started about three o'clock. It was a stormy, chilly afternoon, with great balls of white clouds rolling rapidly in the cold blue sky, and occasional lurid gleams of sunlight, broad and yellow, which made the black ridge of the storm, gathered on the horizon, look blue-black like ink. We walked quickly across the sere and sodden grass of the park, and on to the high road that led over the low hills, I don't know why, in the direction of Cote Common. Both of us were silent, for both of us had something to say and did not know how to begin. For my part, I recognized the impossibility of starting the subject. An uncalled-for interference from me would merely indispose Mr. Oak and make him doubly dense of comprehension. So, if Oak had something to say, which he evidently had, it was better to wait for him. Oak, however, broke the silence only by pointing out to me the condition of the hops as we passed one of his many hop gardens. It will be a poor year, he said, stopping short and looking intently before him. No hops at all. No hops this autumn. I looked at him. It was clear that he had no notion what he was saying. The dark green vines were covered with fruit, and only yesterday he himself had informed me that he had not seen such a profusion of hops for many years. I did not answer, and we walked on. A cart met us in a dip of the road, and the carter touched his hat and greeted Mr. Oak. But Oak took no heed. He did not seem to be aware of the man's presence. The clouds were collecting all round, black domes among which coursed the round gray masses of fleecy stuff. I think we shall be caught in a tremendous storm, I said. Hadn't we better be turning? He nodded and turned sharp round. 
The sunlight lay in yellow patches under the oaks of the pasture lands and burnished the green hedges. The air was heavy and yet cold, and everything seemed preparing for a great storm. The rooks whirled in black clouds round the trees, and the conical red caps of the oast houses, which give that country the look of being studded with turreted castles. Then they descended, a black line upon the fields, with what seemed an unearthly loudness of caw. And all round there arose a shrill, quavering bleating of lambs and calling of sheep, while the wind began to catch the topmost branches of the trees. Suddenly, Mr. Oak broke the silence. I don't know you very well, he began hurriedly, and without turning his face towards me. But I think you are honest, and you have seen a good deal of the world, much more than I. I want you to tell me, but truly, please, what do you think a man should do if— And he stopped for some minutes. Imagine, he went on quickly, that a man cares a great deal, a very great deal for his wife, and he finds out that she— Well, that— that she is deceiving him. No, don't misunderstand me. I mean that she is constantly surrounded by someone else and will not admit it. Someone whom she hides away. Do you understand? Perhaps she does not know all the risks she is running, you know, but she will not draw back. She will not avow it to her husband. My dear Oak, I interrupted, attempting to take the matter lightly. These are questions that can't be solved in the abstract, or by people to whom the thing has not happened and it certainly has not happened to you or me. Oak took no interest of my interruption. You see, he went on, the man doesn't expect his wife to care much about him. It's not that. He isn't merely jealous, you know. But he feels that she is on the brink of dishonoring herself. Because I don't think a woman can really dishonor her husband. Dishonor is in our own hands and depends only on our own acts. But he ought to save her, do you see? He must. He must save her in one way or another. But if she will not listen to him, what can he do? Must he seek out the other one and try to get him out of the way? You see, it's all the fault of the other, not hers. Not hers. And if only she would trust in her husband, she would be safe. But that other one won't let her. Look here, Oak, I said boldly, but feeling rather frightened. I know quite well what you were talking about, and I see you don't understand the matter in the very least. I do. I have watched you and watched Mrs. Oak these six weeks, and I see what is the matter. Will you listen to me? And, taking his arm, I tried to explain to him my view of the situation, that his wife was merely eccentric and a little theatrical and imaginative, and that she took a pleasure in teasing him, that he, on the other hand, was letting himself get into a morbid state, that he was ill and ought to see a good doctor. I even offered to take him to town with me. I poured out volumes of psychological explanations. I dissected Mrs. Oak's character twenty times over and tried to show him that there was absolutely nothing at the bottom of his suspicions beyond an imaginative pose and a garden play on the brain. I adduced twenty instances, mostly invented for the nuns, of ladies of my acquaintance who had suffered from similar fads. I pointed out to him that his wife ought to have an outlet for her imaginative and theatrical over-energy, I advised him to take her to London and plunge her into some set where everyone should be more or less in a similar condition. I laughed at the notion of there being any hidden individual about the house. I explained to Oak that he was suffering from delusions, and called upon so conscientious and religious a man to take every step to rid himself of them. 
adding innumerable examples of people who had cured themselves of seeing visions and of brooding over morbid fancies. I struggled and wrestled like Jacob with the angel, and I really hoped I had made some impression. At first, indeed, I felt that not one of my words went into the man's brain, that, though silent, he was not listening. It seemed almost hopeless to present my views in such a light that he could grasp them. I felt as if I were expounding and arguing at a rock. But when I got onto the tack of his duty towards his wife and himself, and appealed to his moral and religious notions, I felt that I was making an impression. I dare say you were right, he said, taking my hand as we came in sight of the red gables of Oakhurst, and speaking in a weak, tired, humble voice. I don't understand you quite, but I am sure what you say is true. I dare say it is all that I'm seedy. I feel sometimes as if I were mad, and just fit to be locked up. But don't think I don't struggle against it. I do. I do continually. Only sometimes it seems too strong for me. I pray God night and morning to give me the strength to overcome my suspicions, or to remove these dreadful thoughts from me. God knows. I know what a wretched creature I am and how unfit to take care of that poor girl. And Oak again pressed my hand. As we entered the garden, he turned to me once more. I am very, very grateful to you, he said. And indeed, I will do my best to try and be stronger. If only, he added with a sigh, if only Alice would give me a moment's breathing time and not go on day after day mocking me with her lovelock. Chapter 10 I had begun Mrs. Oak's portrait, and she was giving me a sitting. She was unusually quiet that morning, but it seemed to me with the quietness of a woman who was expecting something, and she gave me the impression of being extremely happy. She had been reading, at my suggestion, the Vita Nuova, which she did not know before, and the conversation came to roll upon that, and upon the question whether love so abstract and so enduring was a possibility. Such a discussion, which might have savored of flirtation in the case of almost any other young and beautiful woman, became, in the case of Mrs. Oak, something quite different. It seemed distant, intangible, not of this earth, like her smile and the look in her eyes. Such love as that, she said, looking into the far distance of the oak-dotted parkland, is very rare, but it can exist. It becomes a person's whole existence, his whole soul, and it can survive the death not merely of the beloved, but of the lover. It is unextinguishable and goes on in the spiritual world until it meets a reincarnation of the beloved. And when this happens, it jets out and draws to it all that may remain of that lover's soul and takes shape and surrounds the beloved one once more. Mrs. Oak was speaking slowly, almost to herself, and I had never, I think, seen her look so strange and so beautiful, the stiff white dress bringing out but the more the exotic exquisiteness and incorporealness of her person. I did not know what to answer, so I said, half in jest, I fear you have been reading too much Buddhist literature, Mrs. Oak. There is something dreadfully esoteric in all you say. She smiled contemptuously, I know people can't understand such matters, she replied, and was silent for some time. 
but through her quietness and silence, I felt, as it were, the throb of a strange excitement in this woman, almost as if I had been holding her pulse. Still, I was in hopes that things might be beginning to go better in consequence of my interference. Mrs. Oak had scarcely once alluded to Lovelock in the last two or three days, and Oak had been much more cheerful and natural since our conversation. He no longer seemed so worried, and once or twice I had caught in him a look of great gentleness and loving-kindness, almost of pity, as towards some young and very frail thing as he sat opposite his wife. But the end had come. After that sitting, Mrs. Oak had complained of fatigue and retired to her room, and Oak had driven off on some business to the nearest town. I felt all alone in the big house, and after having worked a little at a sketch I was making in the park, I amused myself rambling about the house. It was a warm, enervating autumn afternoon, the kind of weather that brings the perfume out of everything, the damp ground and fallen leaves, the flowers in the jars, the old woodwork and stuffs, that seems to bring on the surface of one's consciousness all manner of vague recollections and expectations, a something half-pleasurable, half-painful, that makes it impossible to do or to think. I was the prey of this particular, not at all unpleasurable, restlessness. I wandered up and down the corridors, stopping to look at the pictures, which I knew already in every detail, to follow the pattern of the carvings and old stuffs, to stare at the autumn flowers arranged in magnificent masses of color in the big china bowls and jars. I took up one book after another and threw it aside. Then I sat down to the piano and began to play irrelevant fragments. I felt quite alone, although I had heard the grind of the wheels on the gravel, which meant that my host had returned. I was lazily turning over a book of verses. I remember it perfectly well. It was Morris's Love is Enough, in a corner of the drawing room, when the door suddenly opened and William Oak showed himself. He did not enter, but beckoned me to come out to him. There was something in his face that made me start up and follow him at once. He was extremely quiet, even stiff, not a muscle of his face moving, but very pale. I have something to show you, he said, leading me through the vaulted hall, hung round with ancestral pictures, into the graveled space that looked like a filled-up moat, where stood the big blasted oak with its twisted, pointing branches. I followed him onto the lawn, or rather the piece of parkland that ran up to the house. We walked quickly, he in front, without exchanging a word. Suddenly he stopped, just where there jutted out the bow window of the yellow drawing room, and I felt Oak's hand tight upon my arm. I have brought you here to see something, he whispered hoarsely, and he led me to the window. I looked in. The room, compared with the outdoor, was rather dark, but against the yellow wall I saw Mrs. Oak sitting alone on a couch in her white dress, her head slightly thrown back, a large red rose in her hand. "'Do you believe now?' whispered Oak's voice hot at my ear. "'Do you believe now? Was it all my fancy? But I will have him this time. I have locked the door inside, and by God he shan't escape!' The words were not out of Oak's mouth. I felt myself struggling with him silently outside that window, but he broke loose, pulled open the window, and leapt into the room, and I after him. As I crossed the threshold, something flashed in my eyes. There was a loud report, a sharp cry, and the thud of a body on the ground. Oak was standing in the middle of the room, with a faint smoke about him. And at his feet, sunk down from the sofa, 
with her blonde head resting on its seat, lay Mrs. Oak, a pool of red forming in her white dress. Her mouth was convulsed, as if in that automatic shriek, but her wide-open white eyes seemed to smile vaguely and distantly. I know nothing of time. It all seemed to be one second, but a second that lasted hours. Oak stared, then turned round and laughed. The damn rascal has given me the slip again, he cried, and quickly unlocking the door, rushed out of the house with dreadful cries. That is the end of the story. Oak tried to shoot himself that evening, but merely fractured his jaw, and died a few days later, raving. There were all sorts of legal inquiries, through which I went as though a dream. And whence it resulted that Mr. Oak had killed his wife in a fit of momentary madness. That was the end of Alice Oak. By the way, her maid brought me a locket which was found round her neck, all stained with blood. It contained some very dark auburn hair, not at all the color of William Oak's. I am quite sure it was Lovelock's.